Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National, Friday the 7th of October 2022, from the news section... Home Office reprimanded after sensitive counter-terror documents left at London Venue by Ninian Wilson. The Home Office has been reprimanded by a watchdog after sensitive counter-terrorism documents were left at a London Venue. The documents, which were handed to the police in September last year after being found by Venue staff, included two reports from the Government Department's Extremism Analysis Unit and a counter-terrorism policing report. Both contained personal data including that of Metropolitan Police staff, the Information Commissioner's Office, ICO, said. The watchdog found the Home Office failed to ensure an appropriate level of security of personal data and for documents classified as official sensitive. So issued Home Secretary Swilla Braverman, the department's data controller, with a formal reprimand. Information Commissioner John Edwards said, Government officials are expected to work with sensitive documents in order to run the country. There is an expectation, both in law and from the people the government serves, that this information will be treated respectfully and securely. In this instance, that did not happen, and I expect the department to take steps to avoid similar mistakes in the future. The investigation also concluded the Home Office did not have a proper process for signing out documents from its offices and should have reported the incident to the ICO within a 72-hour time limit. In a letter to Home Office Permanent Secretary Matthew Rycroft, the ICO said the breach was not reported by the department until April the 4th this year, even though its staff had been informed the day after the incident. An envelope containing four documents classified as official sensitive was found at the venue by staff on September the 5th, 2021. They handed them to police the next day, who gave them back to the Home Office. The papers contained the personal data of two Met staff and a Foreign Kingdom visa applicant who is the subject of the documents. A Cabinet Office investigation concluded the Home Office was the most likely source of the documents. The ICO did not see where the incident took place and refused to confirm the type of venue, other than it was a public place. A spokeswoman for the body said providing details of the venue was not necessary. The Home Office has since taken steps to avoid similar breaches occurring in the future, the ICO said, but it called for more improvements to be made, including a review of how such documents should be handled, a proper process for signing out documents from offices, and a review of training for staff and handling records containing personal data. Responding to the ICO's reprimand, a Home Office spokesman said, The UK is one of the most robust and transparent oversight regimes for the protection of personal data and privacy anywhere in the world. We know the decision published by the Information Commissioner's Office today and will take its implications into consideration. We feel we continue to ensure that robust controls and independent oversight are in place to ensure we are fully compliant with requirements on processing of personal data. And the article is by Ninian Wilson. From the National, 
Friday the 7th of October 2022, from the news section, UK government sticking two fingers up to scientists with new North Sea licensing round, by Abby Garton Crosby. Furious climate campaigners have accused the UK government of sticking two fingers up to scientists as a new licensing round for oil and gas exploration in the North Sea. The UN and environmental experts have warned that any further fossil fuel projects brought online will have a devastating impact on efforts to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Meanwhile, UK Tory Climate Minister Graeme Stewart claimed that the licensing round will be good for the environment. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said that any new project should be subject to the most stringent climate checks, adding that she feared the plan was a continuation of the UK's haphazard planning about energy. The Scottish Greens joined the campaigners in decrying the move as climate vandalism. The North Sea Transition Authority, NSTA, will begin its 33rd round of offshore licences, with the UK government arguing increased production will boost the economy and energy security. Stewart claimed a new licensing round for oil and gas exploration is entirely compatible with climate targets and we have one of the lowest emitting production systems for oil and gas. Speaking to BBC Breakfast, the Climate Minister said, Actually it's good for the environment because when we burn our own gas it's got lower emissions around its production than foreign gas, as well as supporting British jobs. Our development is not going to affect our usage. Our usage is determined by the framework of the Climate Change Act and the Independent Climate Change Committee, which informs government policy. So you really can be assured that it's actually, I know it sounds contradictory, but it's actually good for the environment that we are going to produce more of our oil and gas at home. Licenses have been made available for sectors of the North Sea, known as blocks, with the NSTA estimating more than 100 may be granted. Companies have been urged to apply for licenses covering the areas to the west of Scotland, in the Northern North Sea, the Central North Sea, the Southern North Sea and the East Irish Sea. However, the FM said there has to be a transition away from oil and gas and accused the UK government of haphazard planning over energy. Speaking to BBC Breakfast ahead of the SNP's party conference in Aberdeen on Friday, she said, In terms of new licences, I've been very clear that within the context of that just transition, we've got to subject any decisions about future exploitation of oil and gas to the most stringent climate checks. I worry right now that what we're hearing from the UK government it's just a continuation of their haphazard planning about energy. In the long term, what they're doing is undermining energy security rather than strengthening it because energy security is difficult, it's challenging, but the route to energy security is to secure that transition away from fossil fuels to renewables. Scottish Green's Energy and Environmental Spokesperson Mark Ruskell MSP said that the move was a brutal slap in the face to anyone concerned about climate change. He added, if this kind of climate vandalism is allowed to go ahead, it will spark more scenes of misery and devastation in those areas already dealing with the impacts, and it's tantamount to a death sentence for tens of thousands of others. We can't drill our way out of this crisis. Even trying to is totally incompatible with our international obligations. We need to be planning for a future beyond oil and gas, not doubling down on it. That means halting all new drilling and investing in a just transition to renewables. Ruskell added that the climate crisis is the biggest challenge facing this generation and called on the UK government to take the issue seriously. He added, 
Every day that the UK government and others spend on these failed, damaging and anti-climate policies is another day that has been wasted. The longer that action is delayed, the more extensive it will have to be. Friends of the Earth, FOE Scotland, said the UK government's climate compatibility checkpoints are a worthless charade. Campaigner Freya Aitchison said, It is deeply cynical to attempt to provide cover for reckless plans to expand the very industry that is fueling both the climate and the cost of living crises. She added, By encouraging greedy fossil fuel companies to keep looking for more fossil fuels, the UK government is denying the reality of the climate emergency. It is sticking two fingers up to climate scientists and energy experts who have made it clear that there should be no new oil and gas if we are to remain within agreed climate limits. Instead of new fossil fuels, we urgently need a transition to an energy system powered by renewables and a mass rollout of the energy efficiency measures to reduce energy demand. With the cost of living skyrocketing due to the volatile prices of oil and gas, it's obvious that our current energy system is completely unfit for purpose, serving only to make oil company bosses and shareholders richer while everyone else loses out. Aitchison also said the UK government doesn't care about the impact of its decisions on the rest of the world, particularly in the Global South, where the ramifications of global warming are already being felt. In that article was by Abby Garton Crosby. From the National, Friday the 7th of October 2022, from the comment section, We Ginger Doug, Liz Truss has undermined the union by disrespecting Nicola Sturgeon. By columnist, We Ginger Doug. The First Minister has said that after a month in office, Liz Truss has failed to call any of the leaders of the devolved government since becoming Prime Minister. Nicola Sturgeon, who has now seen four British Prime Ministers in her time in office, described this as unprecedented. It's safe to say that the respect agenda promised by David Cameron three Prime Ministers ago is now well and truly dead and buried. Scotland, you'll have had your respect, and Theresa May's precious union is clearly not that precious after all. Theresa May travelled to Scotland just two days after becoming Prime Minister. Boris Johnson came to Scotland only five days after becoming Prime Minister, despite the fact he was as unpopular as a case of anthrax, and that was just within the Scottish Tories. When David Cameron became Prime Minister, he visited the then First Minister, Alex Salmond, four days after taking office. There is no love loss between an SNP First Minister and a Conservative Prime Minister, but making a trip to Scotland shortly after taking office is a vital way in which a new Prime Minister signals that they intend to govern for the entire UK and acknowledges the importance of Scotland and what is still supposed to be a union. An early visit to Scotland also serves the crucial political purpose of sending the message that despite obvious differences in policy and philosophy, the Prime Minister seeks to build a constructive working relationship with the second most powerful elected officeholder in the UK. Moreover, an officeholder whose mandate is independent of the House of Commons. You might think that sending such a message would be especially important when that First Minister holds a mandate for bringing about a second independence referendum. However, in a marked departure from previous practice, Truss has been Prime Minister for over a month and hasn't even picked up the phone, not just to Nicola Sturgeon, but to any of the devolved governments. The slight from Trust speaks volumes about the attitude of this Conservative government to the smaller nations of a supposedly united kingdom. It tells us that she views Scotland the same way she views her opponents within the Conservative Party, to be sidelined, ignored and crushed into submission. 
Meanwhile, the First Minister has said during an interview on BBC Radio 4 that she would prefer not to have to fight the next general election on the single issue of independence, turning it into a de facto referendum. Her preference would be for a single issue referendum. However, this depends on judges in the UK Supreme Court ruling in the Scottish Government's favour in the case currently before them. A judgement is expected later this month. Most commentators believe it is unlikely that the case will go to the Scottish Government's way and the court will rule that a referendum can only go ahead with the permission of the House of Commons, which effectively means with the permission of the Conservative Prime Minister. It is vanishingly unlikely that Trust would consent to another referendum. A ruling that in order to ask itself about its future within the UK, Scotland must obtain permission from a Prime Minister from a party it has consistently rejected at the polls, and that Scotland is deemed legally incompetent to make such a decision for itself by means of its own internal democratic processes. This would have seismic and catastrophic implications for the traditional Scottish understanding of the nature of the union which Scotland has always been assured was voluntary. It would be a ruling that the union is not voluntary, and that Scotland does not have the ability to decide for itself the form of government best suited to its needs. Although we can be certain that the BBC and the bulk of the Scottish media will do their utmost to minimise the effects of such a ruling, it would be an effective legal de- declaration that the Union is dead. Killed by the intransigence of the Conservative Party and its Labour fellow travellers, who will only respect the outcome of democratic processes in Scotland when the result goes their way. No wonder Liz Truss went to keep her head down. And that comment piece was by a columnist, Wee Ginger Doug. This article is from The National, date 7th October 2022, from the Culture section. Petition launched to save top independent cinemas and festival, by Laura Pollock. A petition has been launched by filmmakers and cinema fans to save the Edinburgh International Film Festival, the Filmhouse Cinema and Cafe Bar in Edinburgh, and the Belmont Filmhouse in Aberdeen. The group got together after the closures were announced on Thursday. Further collective efforts are planned in Edinburgh and hopefully Aberdeen. At the time of publication, the petition had reached 800 signatures. The petition was started by Paul Singh, a filmmaker based in Edinburgh, and Amanda Rogers from Cinetopia. The pair said they also received input and support from other a community of filmmakers and cinema fans, many from the city but also from other parts of the UK. The charity which runs the venues and event have faced the perfect storm of sharply rising costs. Media in Aberdeen reported that workmen were on the Belmont site changing the locks after the news was announced. Singh said the community was at first shocked, but this was quickly followed by solidarity with the 102 people who lost their jobs without warning. He added, Since yesterday evening, 150 people have signed up to work on it. We're meeting for the first time next week, and this will be a collective effort from our communities in Edinburgh and hopefully Aberdeen and further afield. The main goal of the petition is to show the level of love and support for the spaces and the event. Singh said it was also to encourage those in a position to save them, preserve those essential cultural institutions. Film lover 
Teresa Valentin, said it was difficult to comprehend how no one had any idea this was going to happen. She added, Yesterday's news came as a real shock for me personally, for audiences and the film community, and of course for staff. I think a lot of us are now wondering what has been tried before the board came to this decision. Members of the public who signed the petition have commented on the page why they are pledging support. One supporter wrote, Movies are for everyone. To lose the cultural space and unique programming that Filmhouse and EIFF provides would be a crushing loss to the city. Another said, I just cannot imagine Edinburgh without the Filmhouse and EIFF. It is such a wonderful individual space to go to. We need places like the Film House and its cafe bar to maintain the character of the city or it will be lost to global chains and faceless corporations. The EIFF brings excitement and a bit of glamour to our sometimes dour streets. Surely something can be done. A spokesperson for Creative Scotland said, We are saddened by the news from CMI, the loss of employment of cultural cinema programming in Edinburgh and Aberdeen and the impact on the Edinburgh International Film Festival. We are working to explore future options for such cinema programming in both Edinburgh and Aberdeen and for Edinburgh International Film Festival's 2023 edition. That article was by Laura Pollock. This article is from The National, date 7th October 2022, from the Culture section. Scotland's share of the UK's film studio space continues to grow, research finds. By Gregor Young. Scotland's share of the UK's film studio space continues to grow as more repurposed properties and studio conversions underpin the ambition of making the country a hub for high-end productions, according to new analysis from an independent commercial property consultancy. Knight Frank's research into film and television production in the UK found that Scotland now accounts for around 15% of total stage space outside of London and the southeast of England, with plans submitted for several other major purpose-built facilities. There has been a flurry of activity in the sector according to the research, with pioneer film studios in Glasgow, a former warehouse and whisky distillery, recently becoming Scotland's newest and largest film studio. The facility provides up to 200,000 square foot of studio space, as well as supporting workshop and yard spaces. A potential 44-acre zero-carbon campus at Gartkosh, Edinburgh Caledonian Film Studios, could provide up to an additional 305,000 square foot of stage space, 168 thousand square foot of workshop space and 10,000 square foot of production offices. Knight Frank says attempts to grow the film industry have been hindered by a shortage of purpose-built studio space, particularly in Edinburgh, with attempts to build new facilities hampered by obstacles such as land ownership and a lack of funding. 
However, there has been an increased appetite from investors for Scottish studio assets, with two major facilities changing hands last year. Ward Park Studios in Cumbernauld, previously the largest purpose-built film studio in Scotland, was acquired by Hackman Capital Partners and Square Mile Capital Management. Pyramid Business Park, a redeveloped manufacturing site which hosted the filming of the second series of Good Omens, Trainspotting T2 and Netflix's Outlaw King, was purchased by London and Regional during 2021. Alistair Steele, head of Scotland Commercial at Knight Frank, said, There has been a steady rise in inward investment to Scotland's film sector as more global productions choose Scotland's natural landscape and scenery, strong creative sector, competitive tax credits and world-class talent pool. We are now beginning to see the amount of studio space capable of facilitating more of these projects coming on stream and providing the long missing piece of the puzzle, driving the vision for Scotland as a standout location on the world stage. That article was by Gregor Young. This article is from The National, date 10th October 2022, from the politics section. Deputy First Minister says new paper will provide financial confidence in independent Scotland. By Adam Robertson. An upcoming paper from the Scottish Government will set out how people can have financial confidence in an independent Scotland, John Swinney has said. The Deputy First Minister was asked about the Independence Prospectus paper and why it was being released following the conclusion of the SNP conference in Aberdeen. The government is due to release the third report in its Building a New Scotland series later this week. Nicola Sturgeon has said the series of documents, the first of which was released in June this year, sets out a refreshed prospectus for Scottish independence. The new paper is expected to focus on economic issues. On the BBC's Good Morning Scotland programme, Swinney was asked why the paper was being released after the party conference, as if it suggested you're not entirely confident with what's in it. Swinney said he was very confident about the contents of the paper. He said, In 2014, many people had conversations with me basically saying that they felt they had to vote no because they felt they had more financial security in the United Kingdom. Well, today, eight years on, the tables have turned and people feel very financially insecure in the United Kingdom. And what our paper will do is to set out how people can have financial confidence about the future that lies ahead for an independent country. He said the paper would contain a lot of detail on the economic arguments. Swinney was then asked for specifics on how long an independent Scotland would continue using sterling as its currency. The SNP proposes to use the pound for a period following independence before moving to a new Scottish currency. The Deputy First Minister said, I think it's been pretty well set out by the party how long depends on the economic conditions that we experience, 
and there are very defined tests about what stage we would move from using the pound to using a Scottish currency. The situation would give Scotland much more fiscal discretion than it currently has, he said. Swinney's comments came in the hours before the First Minister will close the party's conference in Aberdeen with a keynote address. She is expected to decry aggressive unionism in her speech, claiming it is undermining the union. But she will claim that Scottish independence can reset and renew the whole notion of nations working together for the common good. England, Scotland, Wales, the island of Ireland, we will always be the closest of friends, she will say. We will always be family, but we can achieve a better relationship, a true partnership of equals, when we win Scotland's independence. She will also talk up the economic benefits of independence, telling members, in short, with independence, we will show how we can break with the low productivity, high inequality, Brexit-based UK economy and use the full powers of independence to build an, an inclusive, fair, well-being economy that works for everyone. That is the prize of independence. That article was by Adam Robertson. This article is from The National, date 10th October 2022, from the Culture section. Dunfermline's city status to be marked with display of prolific photographer, by Adam Robertson. Images taken in the 1960s by a photographer dubbed the father of modern Scottish photography are to feature in an exhibition marking Dunfermline's newly acquired city status. Some 47 black and white pictures snapped by Joseph Mackenzie, who trained as a photographer while in the RAF, will go on show at Dunfermline Carnegie Library and Galleries next month. Mackenzie, who died in 2015, aged 86, became a prolific photographer through the 1960s documenting post-war Scotland at a time of momentous change. All the photographs in the exhibition, titled Dunfermline and its People, which was originally shown in nearby Pittencreef House Museum in 1968, were taken during 1967 and 68, an eventful time period for the former Royal Borough. In 1967, Dunfermline's 100-year-old Castle Blair Works, built to weave linen before becoming a silk mill, closed and was a sign of the town's move away from textiles production. To the south of Dunfermline, an estimated 1,000 families were settling into the recently completed Pitcorthy housing estate, a key part of the town's expansion following the opening of the Forth Road Bridge in October 1964. In 1968, Dunfermline Athletic returned from Hampden Park after securing victory in the Scottish Cup final and a young upcoming folk singer, Barbara Dixon, took the plunge to become a professional musician. Dunfermline is one of eight places to have won city status through a competition as part of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. The King conferred city status on the town 
after carrying out his first official visit as monarch earlier this month. After serving as a photographer in the RAF, Mackenzie taught photography full-time at St Martin's School of Art in London and then at the Duncan of Jordanson College of Art in Dundee. He was elected as an associate of the Royal Photographic Society in 1954. Mackenzie's work was held in public and private collections, including those of the National Portrait Gallery in Scotland, the Victorian Albert Museum and the McManus Art Gallery and Museum in Dundee. His Glasgow Gorbals Children exhibition was shown in Edinburgh, Dundee and Dunfermline in 1965, and in 1966 he followed this up with Dundee, a city in transition, to commemorate the opening of the Tay Road Bridge. That article was by Adam Robertson. This article is from The National, date 10th October 2022, from the News section. Just Stop Oil, protesters block the mall in London. By Adam Robertson. Just Stop Oil protesters have blocked off the mall in front of Buckingham Palace in London. Around 30 activists started sitting on the road at 8.45am wearing orange high visibility jackets and holding Just Stop Oil banners. One Scottish man on a bike could be heard shouting words of support. He said, Go on, the protesters, you're doing great work. Stay strong. Police officer and police liaison officers arrived at the scene to talk to the protesters. One asked, How long are you going to be here? A protester replied, Until we get a new government. A police liaison officer then said, let me know if I can do anything for you. The protester replied, not unless you have a letter from Liz Truss. Emma Brown, 31, who lives in Glasgow and is one of the protesters, said the activists would walk 500 miles just to stop oil. She said the protesters had come down from Scotland and that this was her first demonstration. Brown added, We've come down because the government is pressing ahead with over 100 new fossil fuel licences. And that is literally a death sentence for all of us here and for all of you. So we can't allow this to continue. We have to have a cut off somewhere. We've seen the effects already on our doorstep. We're seeing the effects all over the globe. And this madness has to stop. Police searched the protesters before removing them from the mall with some of the activists having glued their hands together. Some protesters were then arrested. The first two left of their own volition and were taken to a police van while others were physically lifted by officers to different vans. That article was by Adam Robertson. From The National Monday the 10th of October 2022 From the comment section SNP Conference SNP Conference to Debate Raising the Former School Starting Age by Tony Giugliano and Sue Palmer Tony Giugliano, the SNP's Policy Development Convener and Sue Palmer, an educational writer, former head teacher and Chair of Upstart Scotland, have told the National why the resolution to raise the full, former, 
school start age is so important for Scotland's children. On Monday, SNP Conference will debate a resolution to raise the formal school start age and introduce a play-based kindergarten stage. At the heart of the resolution is its call for educational culture change that is vital for Scotland's future success. Scotland's children are Scotland's future, and what happens in their earliest years impacts hugely on their educational potential and motivation to learn, not to mention their lifelong physical and mental health. Early childhood is defined by the United Nations as birth to eight, a time of remarkable growth with brain development at its peak. The UN tells us that educational provision during this critical period should be more than a preparation for primary education. Its primary aim must be the holistic development of a child's social, emotional, cognitive and physical needs. Two important factors for this holistic development are positive, nurturing adult support and opportunities for active social play, particularly outdoors and as often as possible in natural surroundings. At age four or five, when children are only halfway through their early childhood, they move from nursery to school. The ratio of adult carers to children suddenly jumps from 1 to 8 to 1 to 20. There's far less likelihood of all-day access to outdoor play and, since this is school, children are now expected to crack on with the three R's of reading, writing and reckoning. Indeed, since 2018, primary one children have been expected to set Scottish National Standardised Assessments, SNSA, in literacy and numeracy. Local authorities therefore require schools to provide data on all the children's progress in these subjects. Schools feel obliged to teach the skills and parents worry if their kids aren't learning them. Scotland's extraordinarily early school starting age is a hangover from the Victorian times when Westminster Parliament chose to herd the children of the poor into school so their mothers could work in the factories. But modern research shows no long-term advantage in teaching the three R's so early and considerable risk for many children of long-term emotional damage. Children from low-income backgrounds are particularly at risk. At age five, they're generally about a year behind their more fortunate peers in the development of spoken language and problem-solving skills. Until these skills are successfully developed, they'll struggle with literacy and numeracy, with adverse effects on their self-confidence and attitude to school. Children in mainland Europe, indeed 88% of countries worldwide, are luckier because they don't start school till they're six or seven, and children in countries with highly high-quality kindergarten provision for three, to three or four years, focusing on development, relationships and play, are particularly lucky. Such provision not only enhances educational equity and success, but also all children's health and well-being. Unfortunately, after 150 years of too early school start, most Scots assume it's normal for four and five-year-olds to sit in classrooms being taught the three R's. But as Resolution 24 sets out, it's neither normal nor healthy. With huge increases in development, developmental delay on the horizon, thanks to the pandemic and the cost of living crisis, it's a matter of urgency that we change our national culture around early childhood. The Scottish Government has made laudable progress in recent years, including a welcome expansion of outdoor learning, funded nursery provision so that all three and four year olds have access for 1,140 hours per year and the rolling out of free school meals. It also produces guidance on play-based education for early years, including primary one, realising the ambition, but it remains guidance and only some schools have followed through. The time is right to complete the jigsaw and embrace the introduction of a statutory kindergarten stage, 
which would end the present postcode lottery and how Scotland takes forward early years education. As long as central and local government require data on five years performance and progress in literacy and numeracy, P1 teachers will be obliged to teach these subjects whether or not the children are ready to learn. So if we really want to close the attainment gap, improve future generations' mental health, and truly make this place the best in the world to grow up, we need a genuine change in the ethos of education until children are at least six. Raising the formal school startage and statutory play-based kindergarten stage, like those in the Nordic countries, would achieve that change. SNP delegates have the historic opportunity to back the greatest transformation our education system has seen in 150 years. We urge them to rise to the occasion. And that article was written by Tony Giuliano and Sue Palmer. From the National. Tuesday the 11th of October 2022, from the news section. Bank of England further boosts guilt buying programme as market turmoil returns. By Holly Williams. The Bank of England has said it will further bolster its emergency bond buying plan as it warned the ongoing route in the gilts market poses a material risk to UK financial stability. The central bank said it would now widen the scope of its UK government bond buying programme, which was launched in the wake of the mini-budget market tor- turmoil, to include purchases of index-linked UK government bonds amid concerns over another fire sale of gilts. It comes after the sell-off in government bonds, known as GELT, resumed on Monday as investor concerns failed to subside despite action by the Bank of England to double its daily bond buying limit and Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's move to bring forward his new fiscal plan and independent economic forecasts to October the 31st. Long-dated GELT prices tumbled, which sent yields in a 30-year bond soaring to 4.7% on Monday, their highest level since the Bank of England was forced to step in last month to avoid a mini-financial market crisis. The pound also fell to $1.10 as a two-pronged attack by the bank and the Chancellor did little to soothe market worries. The bank said, The beginning of this week has seen a further significant repricing of UK government debt, particularly index-like gilts. Dysfunction in this market and the prospect of self-reinforcing fire sale dynamics pose a material risk to UK financial stability. It added that its latest efforts will act as a further backstop to restore orderly market conditions. Threadneedle Street intervened with emergency action on September the 28th when the mini-budget market chaos caused the pound to tumble and yields and gilts to soar, which led some pension funds across the industry close to collapse. The market turmoil had forced pension funds to sell gilts to head off worries over their solvency but this was threatening to see them suffer severe losses and was creating a downward spiral in gilt prices as more were offloaded. Investment banks made calls on so-called liability-driven investment, LDI, funds, which in turn called on pension funds, forcing them into a fire sale of gilts, driving prices still lower and yields higher. The bank laid bare the scale of the woes last week when it said that the scheme helped the UK narrowly avoid a market meltdown caused by concerns over the Chancellor's tax cut plans. But guilt yields started to surge once more due to ongoing fears of the government's economic policies and worries that the October the 14th deadline set by the bank for its bond buying scheme could see a return to pension fund woes. The bank ramped up its emergency action on Monday to avoid a cliff edge when the programme draws to a close on Friday. It doubled the daily limit on its guilt buying programme to £10 billion 
as part of measures to ensure an orderly end to the plan in its final week. The latest efforts on Tuesday to broaden the bond purchases will further help by temporarily absorbing the, se- the selling of index-linked gilts, according to the bank. It added, The bank continues to monitor developments in financial markets very closely in light of the significant asset repricing of recent weeks. It has also been working with the UK authorities to address risks to the resilience of liabilities-driven investment, LDI funds, arising from volatility in the long-dated government bond gilt market. And that article was by Holly Williams. From The National, Tuesday the 11th of October 2022, from the politics section, Predictions Experts predict what will happen during the Supreme Court and DNF2 case by Dr Nick McCarrow and John Drummond. What can YES supporters expect from the two days of constitutional back and forth in the UK's highest court? We aren't anticipating a decision from the court's judges on whether or not the Scottish Parliament has the power to hold in DNF2 for another six to eight weeks. Ahead of the case being heard, we contacted some experts to get their predictions of what to expect over the next 48 hours. Dr Nick McCarroll, Senior Lecturer in Law, Glasgow Caledonian University. The case will appear a bit unusual for those watching it, as it is not clearly a battle of one party against another. When Dorothy Bain arises to present her reference on the question of Holyrood's power to hold an independence referendum, the Lord Advocate will actually put both sides of the case... You can see that in the paper she has presented to the Supreme Court. Where both sides are clearly in dispute is the question of the timing of this challenge. The Advocate General representing the UK Government believes that the Lord Advocate has made a legal error by raising the question at this stage. The time for the Court to scrutinise the question should be after the referendum bill has made its way through the Scottish Parliament, not before, he will argue. There is a possibility that this argument could succeed, which means we don't get a definite answer on the referendum question and in the Court's ruling. However, the Lord Advocate, I think, has made quite a convincing case that the rule of law and the rules, laws around devolution require the court to give an answer now. If they don't, there could be a stalemate with no clear end. On the substantive question of Holder's powers, previous cases at the court would suggest there will be a reluctance to agree that devolved parliaments can pass laws on reserved matters. Even the argument that the referendum will not be legally binding for me does not overcome that hurdle. So, Success in confirming Holyrood has the power to hold a referendum, to me, seems unlikely. John Drummond What will the Supreme Court decide? My answer is that it may not really matter, in the end. First, a health warning. If you are looking for legal niceties, seek those elsewhere. Here, I am looking at morality, not law. And, for many, this is about morality and ethics. So, it's important to recognise that the law derives from morality and not the other way round. It is also about how one sees oneself. For instance, no one can make a person feel bad unless that person agrees. Likewise, no one can make a country feel bad about independence unless that country agrees. Does Scotland agree with the the role of the Supreme Court in terms of the Constitution? For instance, who decided that the Supreme Court is supreme in this respect? Were you asked? Westminster decided these matters. There is also a larger point about whether or to what degree, its constitutional pronouncements are democratically robust in a Scottish context. Ultimately, these matters are decided by morality. Do you agree to be so governed? Might be the more apt question. Tomorrow, 
on the TNT show on Indie Live at 7pm. I'll be talking with Professor Eileen McCarg, who will be taking your questions on the Supreme Court. And that was by Dr. Mick McHale and John Drummond. From The National, Tuesday the 11th of October 2022. From the Politics section, Former Labour Shadow Minister Sam Tarry ousted in deselection vote by Adam Robertson. A former Labo sh- Labour Shadow Minister, who was sacked from the party's front bench earlier this year, has been deselected in his constituency. Following weeks of campaigning in the safe Labour seat of Ilford South, Sam Tarry failed to see off a challenge from the leader of Redbridge Council, Jazz Athwell. It marks the first deselection of our Labour MP for more than a decade. Tarry was beaten by 499 votes to 361. Athwell will now go forward as the party's candidate at the next general election instead of Tarry, who was sacked from Labour's front bench after giving broadcast interviews from, from an RMT picket line. The vote came after his local constituency branches opted to trigger full reselection proceedings. While candidate selection can be a fraught issue internally within the party, it is relatively rare for a sitting MP to be deselected by their local party. Tarry described himself as very humbled and excited ahead of Monday's hustings. He told the Labour List website after his defeat, I'm incredibly disappointed in this result, mostly for all my committed volunteers and the wonderful people of Ilford South. I intend to issue a further statement tomorrow on the process and outcome. Athwell, a well-known figure locally, was running to stand in Ilford South in 2019 before he was suspended due to a serious allegation. He was later fully cleared. The party's Shadow Health and Secretary and MP for Ilford North, West Streeting, was among the first to congratulate Athwell. He praised his resounding victory, which he said reflects his lifelong commitment to this borough and his outstanding leadership for Redbridge Labour. Jazz will be a superb representative for Ilford South. He is an Ilford story. The boy who came from the Punjab and built an education, successful businesses, and a wonderful family here, Streeting said. He added, He's led Redbridge Labour to three un- unprecedented victories because he's a local resident who fights as hard for our community as he would for his own family. I look forward to working with Jazz Zilfer South next Labour MP. And that report was by Adam Robertson. From the National, Tuesday the 11th of October 2022. From the comments section, The Joker. Jack Monroe defends Nicholas Sturgeon in Detest Tories Row. By the Joker. The Tories have been whipping themselves into a frenzy after Nicholas Sturgeon said she detested everything they stood for, broadcasting the First Minister's statement far further than it ever would have travelled without their help. But instead of the outraged peril clutching they were no doubt banking on, people across the UK have come out in support of the SNP leader's statement. The line has proven so popular, some entrepreneurial souls have started flogging merch with it printed on a graphic handily provided by the Scottish Tories. Of course, there's been the predictable faux outrage from the same Conservatives who didn't bat an eyelid at Michael Gove being labelled a sadist with a darkness inside him that corrupts his soul by figures in his own government, but little else. As the FD's Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard noted, the passive smelling salts reaction would be more credible if the Tories weren't briefing this weekend that an SNP Labour coalition would be Monstrous? Quite. 
And now anti-poverty campaigner Jack Monroe has come out swinging in support of the First Minister. After a brief Twitter hiatus, Monroe logged back onto the social media platform on Sunday. After one tweet of a wage emoji to hint at her return, and a share of a Martin Lewis tweet about a little-known benefit that could add thousands to pensions, the bootstrap cook launched into a defence of the SNP leader. Being a Tory is not a protected characteristic. It is a choice, unlike race, sex, gender, disability, etc., they wrote. If you don't want to be considered detestable, you can identify right out of conservatism and stop backing detestable people, policies and ideas. Hashtag I stand with Nicholas Sturgeon. Bernal went on, you may, may disagree with me, and that's fine, but watching the literal oppressors co-opt the language and struggles of those they oppress on a daily basis is a little bit much to keep quiet on. Straight from the abuser's handbook 101, that nonsense, and I won't stand for it. If you honk like a goose, look like a goose, and goose-step like a goose, you can't really pretend to be offended if people point out that you may just be a goose. Sturgeon has refused to back down on the statement, since she was talking about Tory values and policies that had devastated communities and plunged people into poverty. But the Scottish Tories have willingly ignored all that, instead pretending she was talking about everyone who cast a vote for the Conservatives. There have been desperate attempts to grab headlines with moves such as inviting her to their currently blue constituency or asking Holyrood's presiding officer to intervene. It's all a bit tiresome. And that was an article by The Joker. Recorded from the National on the 11th of October 2022. From the Culture section, recorded by Amy. Blink-182 announced return for global tour with Glasgow Oval Hydro Date by Sarah Campbell. Multi-platinum group Blink-182 have announced their return with plans for their biggest tour ever next year. Band members Mark Coppis, Tom DeLong and Travis Barker will reunite for the first time in nearly 10 years for a series of shows across the globe. There's great news for Scottish fans with a Glasgow date set for the Oval Hydro on Saturday, September 2nd, 2023, in what is promised to be a legendary performance. The band will also release a new single, Edging, this Friday, October 14th, marking the first time in a decade that Mark, Tom and Travis have been in the studio together. Tickets for next year's tour will go on sale on Monday, October 17th. For more information, click here. That article was by Sarah Campbell. Recorded from the National on the 11th of October 2022. From the Culture section, recorded by Amy. Scottish International Storytelling Festival to feature more than 240 events. By Ross Hunter. This Scottish International Storytelling Festival, SISF, has launched its largest ever programme of events. The festival gets underway on October 14th and will run until October 31st, with more than 240 events dedicated to the tradition of oral storytelling in Scotland. The programme is centred around the theme of Keep It Lit and seeks to attract as many visitors as possible to the festival's symbolic fireside. Scots Speaker of the Year, Marilyn Robertson, is set to tell a story dating back to the 800s with the story of Oslag, a historical mythological saga that features Shetlandic language as well as landscapes. Storyteller Annie King and musician-composer Eric Linklater will invite audiences to Hotel Caledonia, which draws together stories from all over the world spanning genres and even getting some of the guests involved. 
The programme also features an extensive list of events in Gaelic, including one with Gaelic singer and researcher Kate Langhorn that shares lesser-known Perthshire Gaelic songs and the stories behind them. From further afield, storytellers Julie Pellissier-Lush and John Shaw will speak about the stories and traditions from North America's First Nations who handed down their culture through oral tradition. Daniel Abercrombie, Associate Director of SISF, said, It's really exciting to be approaching this year's Scottish International Storytelling Festival in Scotland's Year of Stories 2022, no less. We've put together our biggest programme ever, with events happening all over Scotland, from Dumfries to Unst. This year's festival is about keeping the tradition of oral storytelling alive and passing that torch from the past to the present. The programme is piled high with classic cocktails and fables, as well as exciting new commissions from contemporary storytellers, including storyteller and comedian Marilyn Robertson, writer-producer Aisha Josiah and storyteller Shona Cowie. The glow of stories is a warm one during times like these, and we wanted everyone to feel welcome to come along and share in a tale or two. To that end, we have over 140 free events in our programme, plus our festival pass, which gives a discount to paid events at the Scottish Storytelling Centre here in Edinburgh. To see the full programme and find details on how to buy tickets, visit the SISF website. That article was by Ross Hunter. The National News on Wednesday the 12th of October. Hemp could make agriculture net zero. An article written by Ross Hunter. Hemp has the potential to make Scotland's agricultural sector carbon neutral, a new report has found. Industrial hemp is a type of cannabis plant and was once widely grown in Scotland, with its cultivation dating back more than 6,000 years. The plant aids in offsetting carbon by acting as a natural carbon sink, absorbing carbon dioxide from the air as it grows. According to one researcher at Cambridge University, a hectare of hemp can absorb between 8 and 15 tonnes of CO2, compared to the 2 to 6 tonnes absorbed by forests. The plant can also be used in building materials as biofuel, textile fabric and even as an alternative to plastic. It's also protein-rich and high in fibre and micronutrients. The report is a collaboration between the University of Aberdeen's Rowett Institute and Scotland's Rural College, partnering with the Scottish Agricultural Organisation Society and the Scottish Hemp Association. It analysed the supply chain for hemp seed and fibre in Scotland using data collected from farmers predominantly in the northeast of Scotland, as well as in the borders. At present, the supply chain for Scottish-grown hemp is underdeveloped, with no well-established market routes for farmers. The supply chain is also exposed to many threats limiting its development, including low profitability, lack of technical support, weather limitations, lack of financial assistance and stringent legislation. Joint report author Dr Wisdom Dogby of the Rowett Institute said, The information gathered was used to carry out a full assessment of the challenges and opportunities faced by the hemp sector. The hemp plant has the potential to be a cost-effective, carbon-neutral and environmentally friendly crop for farmers. The top five facts associated with hemp-based products are that it is low, no or reduced allergens, is vegan, gluten-free, vegetarian and can be grown organically. It truly has the potential to be a cost-effective product, bringing both health and environmental benefits. 
Joint report author Dr Cesar Riveredo Guia of the Rural College added, Our research has provided strong advice on necessary steps to take to progress the Scottish hemp sector. These include, in the short term, strategies that can be adopted by stakeholders, such as using hemp as a carbon credits crop, as well as the provision of educational and technical support to hemp growers. Medium-term strategies involve relaxing the regulation of hemp and establishing a strong hemp processing sector. Long-term strategies to revamp the hemp sector include establishing strong vertical and horizontal linkages, a seed production centre and a well-coordinated hemp association. An article written by Ross Hunter. The National Politics on Wednesday the 12th of October. Major financial agency slams Chancellor's mini-budget. An article written by Ross Hunter. Kwasi Kwarteng has once again defended his mini-budget after the International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, criticised the UK government's tax-cutting plans. The IMF said that the Chancellor's unfunded tax cuts had made the Bank of England's ability to keep down inflation more difficult. In its prestigious twice-yearly World Economic Outlook, the fund also criticised the scale of the stimulus provided with regards to energy bills and noted that UK inflation will be the highest in the G7 by the end of 2023. The outlook added that in the Eurozone only Slovakia would have a higher inflation rate by the end of next year and laid the blame on Kwasi Kwarteng and the UK government. However, despite this latest criticism, a spokesperson for the Prime Minister defended the plans. They said, I think the government puts in place policies to support British people at a time of global high prices. That's why we think it's right to step back from the highest tax burden in 70 years and ensure the public can keep all of the money they earn. But look, I think the IMF projections set out global challenges that countries are facing. They noted that the UK economy is projected to grow at a rate of 3.6% in 2022 and 0.3% in 2023. Obviously, these projections were prepared before the announcement of the growth plan and the energy price guarantee, so don't reflect the impact of our fiscal measures, they said. They added that the government's plan will lift growth projections. During an exchange in Parliament, Mr Kwarteng said that his financial statement on October 31st will be relentlessly upbeat, but with an iron commitment to fiscal responsibility. However, the SNP pointed out that this is the second time the IMF has criticised the UK government's handling of the economy. SNP Shadow Chancellor Alison Thewlis MP said, The latest criticism from the IMF over the Tory government's disastrous budget is damning. It's unacceptable that rather than heeding the warnings and acting to properly support households and businesses, the UK government instead simply buried its head deeper into the sand. With warnings mounting each day over the real threat to people's incomes, pensions and homes, it's clear that only with independence will we be able to escape harmful Westminster control and get rid of the Tories for good. The reality is that whether it's the Tories or Labour, Scotland will be forced to pay a heavy price as a result of an extreme Brexit and another round of deep austerity cuts under Westminster. Independence is the only route to keep Scotland and our economy safe and build a fairer and more equal society. Pierre-Olivier Gourincha, chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, also warned other countries not to follow the UK's example unless they wish to stoke further financial instability. An article written by Ross Hunter. 
The National News on Wednesday the 12th of October. Record number of women employed. An article written by Adam Robertson. More women are in work in Scotland than ever before, according to the latest data from the Office for National Statistics, or ONS. A total of 74.9% of women aged 16 to 64 north of the border are currently employed, the highest since labour force statistics began in 1992. The data also revealed the unemployment rate in Scotland has dropped by 1.1 percentage points in the past year to 3.3% for the period June to August 2022. This is below the UK-wide unemployment rate of 3.5%. It means that Scotland's estimated employment rate currently stands at 75.8%, which is 0.4 points up from the previous quarter. This is the joint second highest employment rate for the country since 1992, along with the periods March to May 2019 and May to July 2017. It's also higher than the overall UK rate of 75.5%. Employment Minister Richard Lochhead said the Scottish economy and labour market are continuing to show resilience, with the employment level the highest in the series and the rate increasing over the quarter to 75.8%. Additionally, the employment rate for women in Scotland was the highest since the Labour Force Survey estimates were first published in 1992. This is despite the serious challenges Scotland's facing as we recover from the pandemic, the cost crisis impacting businesses and households, the continued impact of Brexit and the economic consequences of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, all impacting on the economy. Mr Lochhead added that Brexit policies are continuing to cause labour shortages and that this is having a negative impact on various sectors across the country. He continued, the UK government holds key powers over migration, visas, VAT, national insurance and key parts of employment law. I've been calling on the UK government to establish a joint task force with devolved nations to alleviate the pressures that current labour market shortages pose. Despite agreeing to engage with the devolved nations on these issues in June, we've received no further response to our request for a joint task force. The UK government must engage with the Scottish government and use all available powers to address these matters. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday the 12th of October. Widespread missile attacks on Ukraine could qualify as war crimes. An article written by Gregor Young. Russian forces targeted Ukraine with a fresh barrage of missiles and munition-carrying drones yesterday. It came a day after widespread strikes killed at least 19 people in what the UN Human Rights Office described as a particularly shocking attack that could amount to war crimes. The Russian bombardment struck both power plants and civilian areas. One person was killed when 12 missiles slammed into public facilities in the southern city of Zaporizhia, setting off a large fire, the state emergency services said. A local official said the missiles hit a school, residential buildings and medical facilities. A spokesperson for the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights said that strikes on civilian objects, including infrastructure such as power plants, could qualify as a war crime. Damage to key power stations and lines ahead of the upcoming winter raises further concerns for the protection of civilians and in particular the impact on vulnerable populations. Ravina Shamdasani told reporters. 
attacks targeting civilians and objects indispensable to the survival of civilians are prohibited under international humanitarian law. Air raid warnings extended throughout the country yesterday morning, sending some residents back into shelters after months of relative calm in Kyiv and many other cities. The earlier lull had led many to ignore the regular sirens, but Monday's attacks in the capital and 12 other regions gave them new urgency. It brings anger, not fear, Kiev resident Vladimir Vasilenko, who is 67, said, as crews worked to restore traffic lights and clear debris from the city streets. We already got used to this, and we'll keep fighting. Alongside the attack in Zaporizhia, energy facilities in the western Lviv and Vinitsia regions also took hits. Although officials said Ukrainian forces shot down an inbound Russian missile before it reached Kiev, the capital region experienced rolling power outages as a result of the previous day's deadly strikes. The governor of the Mykolaiv region, Vitaly Kim, urged residents to remain in bomb shelters as there are enough missiles still in the air. The leaders of the G7 condemned the bombardment and said they would firmly stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. Their pledge flew in the face of Russian warnings that Western assistance would prolong the war and the pain of Ukraine's people. The state emergency service said 19 people died and 105 people were wounded in Monday's strikes. At least five of the victims were in Kiev, Mayor Vitaly Klitschko said. More than 300 cities and towns lost power, from the capital to Lviv on the border with Poland. Russia's widespread attacks come in retaliation to an explosion that damaged a bridge linking Russia to the Crimean Peninsula, which Moscow annexed from Ukraine in 2014. Although Ukrainian officials said Russia's missile strikes on Monday made no practical military sense, Mr Putin said the simultaneous attacks with precision weapons came in retaliation for what he claimed was Kiev's terrorist actions while attempting to repel Moscow's invading forces. As Ukrainian forces grew increasingly bold following a series of counter-offensive successes, a cornered Kremlin ratcheted up Cold War-era rhetoric and fanned concerns it might resort to using nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov addressed the issue yesterday, saying Moscow would only resort to that if the Russian state faced imminent destruction. Mr Lavrov accused the West of encouraging false speculation about the Kremlin's intentions. He said Russia's nuclear doctrine envisages exclusively retaliatory measures intended to prevent the destruction of the Russian Federation as a result of direct nuclear strikes or the use of other weapons that raise the threat for the very existence of the Russian state. Meanwhile, Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov warned that Western military assistance to Kiev, including training Ukrainian soldiers in NATO countries and feeding Ukraine real-time satellite data to target Russian forces, has increasingly drawn Western nations into the conflict on the part of the Kiev regime. Mr Ryabkov said in remarks carried by the state RIA Novosti news agency that Russia will be forced to take relevant countermeasures, including asymmetrical ones. An article written by Gregor Young. The National, on Wednesday the 12th of October. Opinion. Nanny state. As Prime Minister, Mary Poppins would be practically perfect a column written by Shona Craven. It's not often that I would recommend taking advice from Jacob Rees-Mogg. His idea of economising likely involves selling one of his Bentleys and refraining from having a seventh child. 
But so misguided and malevolent is the current Prime Minister that on this occasion I find myself on the side of the Business Secretary, who's been planning a public information campaign about how to cut energy use. Number 10 contends that there are already many sources of advice on how to reduce bills, which is true, and our own monthly Cut Your Cost page is one of them. But it's become clear since the cost of living crisis began that some stressed out people are prickly about being offered this kind of advice, and now Ms Truss appears ideologically opposed to giving it. What's also clear is that her own misinformation campaign about her government's energy cost package is having potentially disastrous effects. A carer called in to Radio 4 last week to say that one of his clients had cranked up the heating after the September announcement, believing their total annual bill could not exceed the cap of £2,500. It's no accident that people believe this. Miss Truss cares more about making her policy sound good than about clearly communicating what it means in practice. Apparently, the Prime Minister objected to the public information campaign on the grounds that hers is not a nanny state government. Incredibly, we learned this from her climate minister. Yes, her climate minister is hesitant to tell people what they should do and concerned that people would take the wrong lessons from a sort of general use-less-energy message. God forbid anyone should safely cut their energy usage for the common good, rather than doing so to get a kickback from their energy supplier. But little wonder the detested Tories can't get their heads around the concept of anyone being motivated by anything other than naked self-interest. On the question of whether giving advice makes the UK a nanny state, annoyingly I'm again on the side of the man who once went campaigning in Fife with his own nanny in tow. Does Miss Truss have any idea what nannies actually do? I'm pretty sure they don't just suggest to their charges that they might consider brushing their teeth, tasting some vegetables or doing their maths homework. If a 100-watt heater is running for an hour and one kilowatt hour of energy costs 21 pence, how much hot air is generated per minute of media interviews with a panicking Prime Minister? A nanny state makes decisions on behalf of the electorate, either by removing choices or curtailing them by means of price increases or other access restrictions. When we face having huge decisions made for us, in the form of power plant shutdowns and consequent blackouts, it's absurd to think that offering a bit of advice is a step too far. It now seems Miss Truss has relented, if not quite U-turned, as the existing Help for Households website is to be beefed up. It really does seem as though she's consistently trying to antagonise her own colleagues by doing the opposite of what any reasonable person would seem appropriate, then flip-flopping. Perhaps she genuinely thinks a top concern of voters is living in her distorted idea of a nanny state. But at this point I would support Mary Poppins for Prime Minister if there was any hope of a snap general election. She might not have a magic money tree, but she does have a bottomless carpet bag and the ability to quite literally parachute into a safe seat accordingly. She would seek broad exemptions to the sugar tax for anything with conceivable medicinal purpose, and she endorses the feeding of birds, not the starving of bairns. She wouldn't dream of telling her friend Bert to go and get a better job, respecting his work-life balance as an enthusiastic participant in the gig economy, and her manifesto commitments include taking us to places we've never dreamed of, as opposed to leading the country into an economic nightmare. Where the practically perfect Miss Poppins helps with both tidying up and tucking into bed, 
Ms Truss and co have threatened the very roofs over many heads by triggering a spike in interest rates and raided our piggy banks in order to gamble with our futures while trying to bamboozle us about who will end up picking up the tab. Miss Poppins is a natural diplomat, at ease with those from all walks of life, and is a fluent, confident communicator. She can hold a conversation with a Yorkshire Terrier, so despite her clipped tones, she's unlikely to be phased about winning over red wall seats. And she's well-travelled, so we can be confident she at least knows where the Black Sea is located. Never one to mince her words, the candidate would doubtless conclude that Dizzy Lizzie's reckless financial package was atrocious. Perhaps Nanny doesn't know best, but she certainly couldn't do any worse. A column written by Shona Craven. The National Politics on Wednesday the 12th of October. SNP releases first advert for new Scotland's Voices broadcasting platform. An article issued by the National News Desk. The SNP has launched an advert trailing the party's new broadcasting platform. The plan to launch Scotland's Voices was announced by the SNP's deputy leader Keith Brown on the first day of the party conference in Aberdeen. It's understood that the regular show expected to be put out in podcast form across social media platforms, including TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, will promote the case for independence. Mr Brown told the conference, we'll soon launch a brand new broadcast platform with the first episode of this brand new show covering the debate over Scotland's future. We'll bring you familiar and new voices to discuss the big issues surrounding the case for independence. So please keep your eyes peeled online and in your email inbox for more details on this exciting development to be announced very soon. Now, as the Supreme Court begins to hear oral arguments on Scotland's right to hold an independence referendum without Westminster's consent, the SNP has released a short advert trailing the new platform. It begins with Aberdeenshire councillor Fatima Georgi saying, Scotland's future matters to us all. Others then say that Westminster politicians would prefer Scots to be seen and not heard, before adding, that's about to change. The advert was shared online by the SNP's official account, after initially being posted by party strategist Ross Colquhoun. Soon after it was announced on Saturday, the broadcasting platform was jokingly branded Natflix. An article issued by the National News Desk. From the National... Thursday the 13th of October 2022, from the news section, Angus Robertson visits Iceland to strengthen Scottish Arctic ties. Report by Craig Meehan. Scotland's world-leading expertise in decarbonisation, Arctic research and renewable energy will be among key areas highlighted for collaboration on Angus Robertson's visit to Iceland, the Scottish Government has said. The External Affairs Secretary will attend the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, where he will meet with international delegates and Icelandic ministers. He will be joined by a delegation from Scotland, which includes representatives from Parliament, universities and island councils. With a focus on knowledge exchange and international collaborations, the themes of Scotland's contribution to this year's conference range from biodiversity loss and ocean energy to higher education and rural connectivity. Scottish ministers have participated in the Arctic Circle Assembly every year since 2016, while First Minister Nicola Sturgeon attended the event last year. Speaking on his arrival in Iceland for a two-day programme, Robertson said, Scotland has grown confident in its role as the world's most northerly non-Arctic nation. 
The Arctic Circle Assembly offers an excellent opportunity for Scotland to promote our expertise in relation to the ambitions and challenges in both Europe and North America that we share with our Arctic partners. We are keen to work with our Arctic neighbours to tackle joint issues such as decarbonising our societies, promoting rural wellbeing and tackling climate change. Scotland has a wealth of knowledge to contribute as an expert partner to Arctic Dialogue while learning from solutions developed by others. Iceland's success illustrate how smaller countries can be influential and effective, force for good, internationally. We also share Iceland's commitment to international cooperation as a way to promote sustainability and prosperity, both at home and overseas. I look forward to our continuing participation in the Arctic Circle Assembly. I'm sure the strong Scottish presence this year will lead to even more opportunities for collaboration in the region. And that article is by Craig Meehan. From the National, Thursday the 13th of October 2022, from the news section, lawyer who helped reclaim Stone of Destiny hailed as Scottish icon at funeral in Argyll and Butte, by Craig Meehan. A lawyer who helped reclaim the Stone of Destiny will be remembered for as long as Scotland exists, mourners as his funeral service have been told. Until his death on October the 4th, age 97, Ian Hamilton KC was the last surviving member of the gang of four students who took the famous stone on which kings and queens of Scotland were traditionally crowned. Former SNP MSP Alex Neil told the service at Connell Village Hall, Argyll and Butte, that his late friend was a Scottish icon, adding, As long as there's a planet called Earth and a nation called Scotland, the name of Ian Hamilton will be remembered. For thousands of years from now, I believe that Ian will be revered then as he is today. Draped in a saltire, Hamilton's coffin was taken after a service to his home near the village with the pallbearers, who included his sons Jamie and Stuart, carrying him on the last leg of his final journey. Born in Paisley, Renfrewshire in 1925, Hamilton was studying law at Glasgow University when he took part in the daring Christmas Day Day raid on Westminster Abbey with fellow students Gavin Vernon, Kay Matheson and Alan Stewart. Three months later, the stone, which had been seized by King Edward I of England in 1296, was found 500 miles from London at Arbroath Abbey and returned to Westminster. In 1996, it was sent back north of the border and is on display at Edinburgh Castle. It will be taken to London again next year for the King's coronation. Hamilton's sons gave eulogies at the service, which was attended by Scottish Justice Secretary Keith Brown, and former Scottish Socialist Party leader Tommy Sheridan. Stuart Hamilton, who said his father died with his two sons at his side at home, said he had been carrying that stone with him all the way through his life. Both his sons thanked his carers for helping their father, and the congregation laughed when Jamie Hamilton told them in his eulogy, It's hard work being a carer. I have seen it first. It's even harder work being a carer for Ian Hamilton. He described his father as a caring, humane man who never compromised on his principles. He added, he was an extraordinary orator and has taken me 97 years in a coffin to get any kind of word in edgeways, as he noted his father had a sense of justice, would speak up for the vulnerable and challenge authority if he thought what was happening was wrong. Both his sons recalled the exploits of their father from trying to sail across the Atlantic, jumping off Connell Bridge after a drunken bar bet for charity, flying in Canada, protesting against the nuclear weapons at Faslane when he was arrested and driving a motorbike well into his 80s. 
Stuart Hamilton said, He had addiction, he had many addictions, but his main addiction was life. His compulsion to live was the driving force behind everything he did, behind everything, behind his whole wonderful, amazing life. He couldn't help it. It defined him, it consumed him, and for that he'll be forever proud. Following Hamilton's death, Nicholas Sturgeon wrote on Twitter that the 97-year-old was a lawyer of exceptional quality and a legend of the independence movement. And that article is by Craig Meehan. From the National, Thursday the 13th of October 2022. From the politics section, Liz Truss branded evil for voting against ban on arms sales to Saudi Arabia by Steph Braun. Liz Trust has been branded sadistic and evil for voting against a ban on arms being sent to Saudi Arabia. An odious member on the BBC's debate night, who had family from Yemen, said Trust's actions go beyond detestable as she highlighted the Prime Minister had taken away human lives and still secured the keys to number 10. The eight-year-old conflict in Yemen is between the internationally recognised government, which is backed by a Saudi-led military coalition, and Houthi rebels supported by Iran. The humanitarian crisis in Yemen is said to be among the worst in the world due to widespread hunger, disease and attacks on civilians. During a discussion about Nicola Sturgeon saying she detested the Tories, the audience member said, A couple of years ago, Liz Truss went against a ban on arms sales to send arms to Saudi Arabia and those arms are obviously going to go and kill innocent Yemenis including school buses full of children, marketplaces, funerals and weddings. I will go further than saying that what sh- that is is detestable. I think it's downright sadistic and evil. After the presenter pointed out that cons- that considered policy rather than individuals, she replied, but she's Prime Minister now and she's gotten away with that. I think that just shows that you can do really evil things and take away human lives and still get a promotion in your job. During the discussion, Tory MSP Jeremy Balfour also says Sturgeon's language bordered on a hate crime. Sturgeon defended her comments by saying she was referring to Tory policies and values. And that report was by Steph Braun. From the National, Thursday the 13th of October 2022, from the news section. Man killed in three vehicle crash on the E9 in Highlands. Report by Adam Robertson. A man has died following a three vehicle crash on the E9 in the Highlands. A silver Ford C-Match travelling south on a single carriageway near King Yusei was involved in a collision with two vehicles travelling north, a white Mercedes Sprinter van towing a trailer carrying a small tractor, and a blue-slash-black Renault Captur. The crash occurred at around 6.45pm on Wednesday. The driver of the Ford, a 64-year-old man, was pronounced dead at the scene. The 41-year-old male driver of the van and his 20-year-old male passenger were checked over by the paramedics. The female driver of the Renault, 61, and her 79-year-old male passenger were also treated at the scene. The road was closed while crash investigations were carried out and it reopened around 4am on Thursday. Police are appealing for witnesses. Highlands and Islands Road Policing Sergeant Sergeant Alistair Mackay said, Our thoughts are with the family and friends of the man who died at this difficult time. As we continue our inquiries into the circumstances, I would appeal to anyone who saw what happened, or who has relevant dashcam footage of the area at the time, to contact us. Anyone with information is urged to call Police Scotland on 101, 
quoting reference 2835 of October the 12th. And that, that report was by Adam Robertson. From the National, Thursday the 13th of October 2022, from the comment section, the world looks on aghast at the UK's economic chaos and there are lessons for Scotland here by Professor Richard Murphy. Someone once said there are decades in politics when most when most of that happens could be occurred in little more than a week. Then they suggested there are weeks when a decade's worth of events take place. It's not hard to work out which we have suffered since I appeared in the National just seven days ago. The Trust Tory government in Westminster has seemingly decided to shed whatever limited credibility it might have had on that day, little more than a month ago, that Trust was announced to be leader of her party. Since then, they have announced the first unfunded budget in history. As a result, they have been forced to make U-turn on the 45p tax rate and windfall taxes on energy companies. They keep insisting there will be no more U-turns to come, but no one believes them. That's because no one can work out how Quartings figures add up. This government is still a disaster in the making. As a result, financial markets have decided to ignore the interest rates set by the Bank of England and are now pushing market rates much higher than the official ones. The result is that the price of government bonds, which are issued to fund government spending not covered by taxation, has fallen rapidly because our price falls as interest rates rise. And, as many now know, that has resulted in financial pressure in pension funds. The Bank of England has, very reluctantly, been forced to assist them, while making many U-turns of its own whilst doing so. The resulting impression that this government and the Bank of England may not be able to organise the proverbial party in a brewery is very strong. Around the world, other countries look on bemused and aghast at the mess London is creating. What should anyone in Scotland think about all this? I won't return to the currency issue. I discussed that last week and depending on what the SNP has to say on its economic plan due next week, might well discuss that again quite soon. But anyway, that is not the only issue of concern. What everyone in Scotland needs to understand from this is that sound finances are the foundation of any state, but when finances are made the focus of a state, then the state will fail, as the UK is now giving the impression of doing. Dealing with these issues in turn, what the first means is that an independent Scotland has to have a plan for sound finances. This requires that there must be an unambiguous plan for the currency, spending, investment, taxation, borrowing, pensions, banking and the management of the institutions that will manage these matters. Nothing less will do. Understanding of all issues will be vital to the success of an independent Scotland. Failures to be clear will lead to a political mess and lack of confidence, as trust is discovering. Scotland can never replicate the City of London. But however good the systems and financial services sector of Scotland that they might regulate might be after independence, the real lesson from the mess that England is in is that Scotland must never try to replicate the role of the City of London in Edinburgh or anywhere else after independence. A state cannot be built on the basis of financial services. The UK has tried that for 40 years now. The result is all too obvious. This policy has led to rampant inequality, whether at a personal level or between regions. It has also degraded international relationships. You cannot ultimately be a centre for a slightly dodgy hot money and be a part of the international community. And that hot money is degraded politics. We do not know how often the Tufton Street think tanks in London are funded, but they always have been big fans of tax havens. 
That's not a good look. Financial services cannot be a foundation. Scotland needs to avoid such a fate and the risks that go with it. It will need strong financial services, but its past tradition in this area was for caution, mutual companies that shared their profits with those who invested with them, and of service to the community. Replicating that now would serve Scotland well, but would necessarily mean that the finance will never be the foundation of Scottish prosperity. That is entirely appropriate. Renewable energy, the industries that support it and the exports that they generate, including of the associated education that they can supply, will be the economic bedrock of an independent Scotland. And the good news in all this is that the debacles of the type now engulfing the Tories in Westminster are much less likely as a consequence. Honesty about government finances and a dependence on real wealth creation, not finance, are what Scotland needs. Which does bring me quite neatly to, back to thinking about what the SNP might have to say next week. And that column was by Professor Richard Murphy. And that was this week's The National Podcast, only recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.